You know, I always saw myself as, as a pretty good person. You know, sure, I did, I did things that I lied, I, I stole, I cheated. But when I compared my sin, my mistakes to my friends, I looked pretty good. Even though when I blew it, when I made mistakes, I had a real sense that I had done wrong. And I was so steeped in shame and guilt that I didn't know how to get out of that trap. And the solution in the religion that I was involved in was to go to a spiritual man once a month into a dark room with this man on the other side of a screen that I couldn't see, nor did I know, and confess my sins to him. And then he would give me hoops to jump through. He would tell me to do so many Hail Marys and Our Fathers and push-ups and arm rolls and everything else. And that would make me right with God. Surely a loving God wouldn't exasperate me like that, would he? That I would have to work so hard to not make mistakes. Yet I had that overwhelming sense of guilt and shame. Would he send me to hell for trying so hard? After all, I had a good heart. I really wanted to do good. I really did. I wanted to do good. How about you? You're good people. I know most of you. You're good folks. My guess is that most of you know people that have sinned a lot worse than you. Don't we all know people? Don't we have neighbors that their kids are dressed to the hilt? They go to church every Sunday morning. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't cuss. They don't watch Ultimate Fighting. And they look good on the outside. But they're involved in a, in a religion like maybe Mormonism or Hindu or Muslim. But these are good people. Do you know people like that? They are good people. How could a loving God let good people that arguably look better on the outside in the way they treat their kids and treat, treat their bride than I do? How could a loving God let these people go to hell? That's the million dollar question. I remember having a conversation with my next door neighbor. And it was at the, uh, the Channel 9 health fair thing. And we were supposed to be working. We had this conversation. And she says, Dan, you mean to tell me that my friend, who is a Muslim, that has been married for 40 years, he's a productive citizen, he provides well for his family, you mean to tell me that he's going to hell? And I said, Susan, I don't know if he's going to hell. That's not for me to decide. Here's what I know, though. What I know is that there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. And what I know about the Muslim faith and the Hindu faith is that their way to God, the Creator, is not through the person of Jesus. You know, in today's passage, the Lord has given us a solution to this dilemma. If you would open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. And we have been in Genesis for several months now. I think for about three months. And uh, Dean finished up chapter 5 last week. 
And here we are in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. 6, 7, 8, 9 are the account. It's Moses' account. He's writing to the Israelites. It's his account of the great flood. Pre-flood, during the flood, and after the flood. Chapter 6, verse 1 takes place 1,500 years after creation. So the first five chapters of Genesis covered over 1,500 years. Okay? So the world is well populated. So we're just going to kind of take this uh, a verse at a time. And it says in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, you remember what happened in chapter 1, verse 28? After Adam and Eve were, were created, God said what? It's very good. And he told them to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. So we see here is that man, mankind has been fruitful, and they've multiplied. They've filled the earth. Now, it's important to understand who the sons of God are here. And i got to tell you, there's three different theories, three different takes from, from men that'll know, that know way more than I'll ever know. But as I studied these verses and I read different commentaries, I firmly landed in one place. And honestly, I don't see how the others get in the other places, but I know they do. Who are the sons of God? The sons of God are those from the line of Seth. If you remember back to the end of chapter 4, after Enosh was born to Seth, it said that the people called out to the name of the Lord. And the reason that the people called out to the name of the Lord is because they were praising God because the the line of the woman, the offspring of the woman was alive and well that was going to bring forth the Savior. You tracking with me? So the sons of God is a line of Seth. It's the godly line. It's the lineage that's going to bring forth the Messiah, the Savior, some 4,000 years from this point. The daughters of man were the ungodly, from the ungodly line of, of Cain. So the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they what? They took them to be their wives. All throughout Scripture, we see it in Deuteronomy 7, we see it in 1 Corinthians, that God's people are forbidden to intermarry with folks, with people, with ladies, with guys and gals that are not of the godly line. In Deuteronomy 7, he told the Israelites, his chosen people, to not intermarry with the ites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the, all the other ites. And in 1 Corinthians, he told the Christians not to marry non-believers. So that's what's going on here, is that the godly line, the men from the godly line of Seth, don't give a rip about what God told them to do or not do, and that's to stay away from the pretty women of the line of of Cain. So this is Satan's ploy. If you remember, the offspring of the Messiah was going to come through Abel. What happened to Abel? Cain killed Abel. That's That's the enemy's ploy, is that he wants to snuff out the godly line. And his ploy here was to was to pollute the godly line of Seth by having them intermarry with the ungodly line of Cain. Let's take a look at verse 3. Then the Lord says, My spirit 
shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Some of you have Bibles that say, my spirit shall not contend with man. And what God's saying here is that man is sinful. He can't find anybody righteous. And he's given him a warning. He's given him a 120-year warning to repent. It says, My spirit shall not abide or contend in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. And what he's saying there is that God, as we know, is the one that sustains. He's the author and the sustainer of life. And if they don't turn to him, he's going to snuff them out. And we see in God's word that that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in what? Abounding in love. See, God does not want to see anybody perish. He did not take pleasure in the flood. He does not take pleasure in seeing people go to hell. He is compassionate. He is long-suffering. And He gave them 120 years to turn it around. We've seen this time and time again. We've seen it in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Where Abraham's nephew, Lot, is residing, was residing in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham beseeched the Lord and said, Lord, please don't wipe them out. If you find 50 righteous, would you let them live? And God said, yes. And Abraham says, 40 righteous, and then 30, then 20, then 10. Bottom line, the Lord didn't find anybody righteous in that town, and he wiped them out. And this is going to blow your circuits, because it blew mine. And maybe this is a, well, duh, to you, and it was an aha to me. But you know, the, the greatest judgment that we've ever seen was God the Father's judgment on Christ. Follow me on this. We deserve judgment, don't we? We as sinners, as being totally depraved, deserve God's wrath and His judgment. Christ became our substitute. And He took the full wrath and judgment of the Father that we deserved. So if we put our, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you now have Christ's righteousness in you, and you're not, you are never gonna see judgment. Never going to see judgment. Let's look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is the same word that's used when Caleb and Joshua went down into the promised land and they came back and said, don't go there, there's giants there. But in this verse, it tells us that the Nephilim were there before the flood and they were there after the flood. Nephilim here means fallen man. It means fallen man. They might have been big guys, I don't know, but they were certainly fallen. And then it says that these were men of renown. And what was happening there, just like today, is that ungodly people were being elevated They were becoming heroes of society. And you see it all around us today, don't you? In the sports athletes, in the politicians. That fallen man are our heroes. They are the men of renown. This was a very sinful and depraved time. Honestly, 
very similar to where we're living in right now. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, verse 5 probably happened towards the end of that 120 years. Between verse 4 and verse 5, those 120 years. And this is what I envision. Is that when God warned Noah, there there was dancing in the streets. People were partying. They were selecting wives that they shouldn't have been selecting. There was sin that was rampant on the earth. The Lord warned Noah, and he warned the people as he built the ark for 120 years to repent, to turn towards God. Now, here we are just a week or two before the flood, and this is what the Lord saw. He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, where we're at as a society today is that if we look good on the outside, if we've got morality, if we've got children that sit still, that are obedient, that go to uh, private schools, whatnot, that we've got it licked. But the Lord looks at the heart. It says in Proverbs 12:2, the Lord sees and knows our hearts. The problem is, is the condition of our hearts. In Romans 3.23, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all have sinned. And remember what the Lord sees is the heart. In Psalm 14 and, and also in 53, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Let's take a look at verses 6 and 7 as our time is getting short. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out, literally I will wipe them off the face of the earth. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. There's a a big word called immutable. And God is immutable. And what that means is, is he can't change. He can't change his mind. He won't change his mind. Every decision he makes is perfect. He didn't say that I'm sorry I made man. Didn't he say just a few chapters earlier that that he made man and it is good, it is very good? It says that he was sorry and he was grieved. He was sorry he grieved over the sin of man. The Lord grieves when we sin. He was sorry and he grieved. You know what else he was sorry about and grieved over? Because he knew what he had to do. He knew what was coming. He knew that he's a holy God. And this holy God cannot tolerate sin. This holy God is long-suffering. He is patient. He's compassionate. But eventually, there's going to be judgment God doesn't make mistakes. Every person on the planet that has not put their faith and trust in Jesus, they're going to be faced with judgment. And as soon as they take their last breath, or when the Lord comes back the second time, it's too late. It's too late. Verse 8. I love the way the Lord's crafted His Word. 
Because what he's done here is he's just showed us that the heart of man, every intention of our heart is evil. And that there's going to be judgment. There has to be judgment. He's a holy God. Look at verse 8. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Does anybody have a different version than that? If you do, raise your hand. There's another version that says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we need to look at the New Testament to really understand this in Hebrews 11.7. And just make a note of that. And it says this. It says, By faith... Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes from what? Faith. God showed favor to Noah. He showed grace. It had nothing to do with Noah's craftsmanship. Or the good person that he was. Just like Abraham. Remember, Abraham was saved when he believed God for a son. And it said that that belief in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. So Noah was saved by faith as well. Very similar to the events that happened in Genesis 3.15. Remember those verses? Called it proto-evangelism, right? It was the, it was the, the shadow of the of the coming of Christ. And if you remember, Adam and Eve got spanked for sinning. Where there was uh, now pain in childbirth, there's extra work for the man, there's relational conflict, and there's sin in our nature, every one of our nature, because of their sin. But God, being a loving God, does not administer judgment or consequences without a blessing. And you remember after he gave out those consequences, he said, from you woman, will come an offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. And in the midst of God's judgment on this land where Noah lived, he gave blessing. He kept the line alive, the line of Christ alive. So what? So what? What do we do with that? Now what? If you're a Christian, can I just submit to you that it's important to remember where it is we've come from? And it's important to remember what it is that we deserve? I think sometimes in Christendom, we, we, we don't want to look back. We don't want to look back. We don't want to remember what it is that we were saved from. I can't think of anything more important than a Christian to remember that we were saved by God's grace, from God's wrath. We still have got the sin nature, but we got God's Spirit in us that overpowers us, that overpowers that sin nature. Next time you sin, when the Lord convicts you, confess it, remember what He's done for you, And rejoice! Rejoice! Is it... Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Skylar. 
There is nothing, there's no better news on the planet. And I want to encourage you, the next time the Lord convicts you of sin, remember, He saved you from the guilt of sin. And don't be afraid to remember, Lord, thank you, because I know that if you hadn't died for me, that I would be heading for an eternity in hell. But I praise you, Lord Jesus, that I'm not going to get it. And I want you to rejoice in that news. What do I want you to do? Rejoice. Say it. Rejoice. Say it again. Rejoice. Amen. If you have not yet bent your knee to Christ, if you are here today, and you can relate with the people in the time of Noah, and you can relate with my story, that you really feel like you're a good person. And honestly, I'm sure you are. But it says in God's Word that all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags. And that you still got that guilt and shame, don't you? If you don't know the Lord, you still got that guilt and shame. And there's only one way to remove that guilt and shame. And that's to turn from doing it your own way and turn in obedience to following Jesus because He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. And you won't have a perfect life, but you'll be forgiven. And you'll be able to agree with this rejoicing that we're talking about. Because we're not perfect as Christians, are we? Well, maybe some of you are. I'm not perfect as a Christian, but I'm forgiven, and I've got the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, that gives me the strength and the power to overcome sin. Next week, we're going to look at verses 9 through 13. And what we've seen here is that Noah, in a wicked generation like ours, was saved by God's grace. What we're going to see next week is the fruit of that salvation. We're going to see the fruit of that salvation and what's required of us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we do rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that, that you know us that you see and know every intention and, and thought of our hearts. And Lord, I just pray that for every child of God here, every Christian, God, that you would convict us of sin. God, that you'd give us the power and the strength to overcome sin. Pray, Father, that you would help us remember that you have saved us from that guilt and shame. And that even though we deserve the Father's full wrath, and we deserved an eternity separated from you, that we're not going to get it. And that would just drive us to our knees in just joy and rejoicing. God, I pray that if there's anybody here today, Lord, those that are here today, that have yet to bend their knee to you, Father, would you do what only you can do? Would you remove the scales? God, please, please, Lord, break us down. Break us down. 
Bring us to a place where we are just completely surrendered to you. We love you, God. We just uh, just praise you and worship you.